welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are on a book edition episode, so we're going to be talking about a book. And we have two extremely special guests. Chris, why don't you tell us who we've got with us today? We have Nicholas Verviescas and Daniel Castro, who are the founders of our favorite, the Pink Smoke's favorite Spanish language film uh, website and criticism site, which is the Colombian online film criticism portal, Filmigrana. Uh, on Filmigrana, you'll find everything from in-depth investigations of local genre to fetishistic reappraisals of low-level 90s horror entries to horrified shock reviews of national comedic scum. Uh, it's a great site. And I'm not sure how it came to our attention. I think Nicholas uh, sent me an email saying, hey, we do this site. And I started reading it. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It has a sensibility I really like. That's uh, a good mix of um, highbrow approach to lowbrow stuff and lowbrow approach to highbrow stuff. I think that it does a good, a good mix. It takes, it takes seriously... Uh, unserious things and is unserious about serious things sometimes, but it's it's just good writing, you know. When you read good writing, you can fucking see it. And so we wanted to have them on to talk about a genre book uh, to on this episode of the podcast to do one of the uh, genre episodes. And I've had you sit in silence. You're right here. And welcome to the show, <laughs> Nicholas and Daniel. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is an honor for us to be here because uh, uh, I don't know if you told me this before, but like Pink Smoke was like a huge influence uh, for our website. Uh, that that I believe was mentioned, but John and I shut out all compliments and refused to hear them. We've got to stay hungry. <laughs> we didn't. It's been thrown down the memory hole already. Uh, thank you guys very much. It's obviously a mutual respect. What what book did you guys pick for us to talk about today? All right, well, uh, for today, we brought uh, 1956, uh, Tiger, Tiger, uh, as it is also known, The Star's My Destination by Alfred Bester. So uh, that is the book that we picked for today. And was that a uh, mutually agreed upon decision or be honest, one of you forced it on the other? <laughs> Who well, uh, I, may, I may have forced it on, uh, on Nick. <laughs> there was, there was something decision. there behind. <laughs> there was some debate, yeah, but... Yes, because uh, there was kind of like, I don't know, there were two shores at the beginning. So I was leaning into, at some point I said, okay, wouldn't it be a good idea to bring some, maybe, I don't know, um, we were thinking of Ballard first. I was yeah. thinking of like bringing Crash, but then maybe it, it would get like, maybe too complex or, and also Daniel was thinking of um, uh, Jim Thompson, if I'm oh. not mistaken. Yes. Which one were you guys looking at for Thompson? Did you um, have? You thought about uh, Hell of a Woman? Oh, I just reread that back yeah. in October. That would have made my life so easy. Excellent book. <laughs> I wouldn't have had to have yeah, read a book so like that. That was like, yeah. That was ahead, literally sorry. when I, when we're doing the podcast. I'm normally reading the book for the podcast, and then like my non-podcast book, and that was my non-podcast book for October. It was hell of a. Oh, I would have lined so, perfectly okay. for this one. I know, I know. I'm sorry, that, that but no, point. no. I'm really <laughs> glad you guys recommended this book. I've got to say, this was a fantastic selection. I I was not familiar with it before it was recommended to us, and I was I was really. Um, 
uh, I was really blown away how much I enjoyed this book. Uh, and, and I'm really glad it was put in front of me because I don't think it would have, you know, come across my, my desk otherwise. Now, before we get into the book itself, what we do on every episode with the, with the novels is we do an aperitif pairing and a dessert pairing. So we each pick something uh, to watch, to listen to, to ingest a piece of content to be consumed by consumer. In your, in the spirit of Christmas, before you see uh, or read um, the stars, my destination. So that's what we should do. We'll do our aperitif selections. I will just start off really quick with mine, and then we can go through everybody else. Um, the only thing I knew about this book is uh, John Carpenter had been asked what his dream project would be. And he said, The Star is My Destination by Alfred Bester. Uh, so when I was reading it, um, I was sort of filtering it through the John Carpenter lens a little bit to see if I could see what he found interesting in it. That was in the back of my head some of the time. And so I, I would say, for your aperitif pairing, watch Escape from LA, which is obviously a horrible movie in some ways, but I think, think that the what a good version of it would be you can see in this book that sort of like the plastic surgeon played by Bruce Campbell sort of mm -hmm. has an analog in this book and the uh, revolutionary forces that are sort of in an international war and the corporate intrigue that's become sort of like a Cro-Magnon type chaos is in Escape from L.A., uh, and has analogs in this book. You can sort of see a good version of Escape from LA when you read this book, even though it's entirely its own thing. And I think that that, that was interesting for me to think about when I saw it. Now, uh, Nick, I should call you Nick instead of Nicholas? Yes, please. Okay. okay. <laughs> Nick, what is, your, what is your aperitif pairing? All right, well, Chris, I would say that, uh, well, I was thinking this one like really hard because um, kind of like getting into, getting into, this, into this book in particular and uh, kind of like all the sci-fi trappings that it has and the ones that it doesn't have because uh, there is still like these, I don't know, there, there, is, a, there is a lot of, um, a lot of value that, that I couldn't find like really anywhere else. I was trying to think of uh, a different experience maybe, uh, also inspired by, by the title, the original title of the book, Tiger, Tiger, yeah. uh, which, he, which comes from a William Blake poem, right? So yes. I, I think the poem itself, uh, I don't know if you guys have read it. I have, already. Who Framed Thy Fearful Symmetry. Yes, anyway. yes, that's the same one. I, I really like that poem and, and it brought me kind of like some of the ideas of this creature that is uh, Gulliver. Gulliver. Yeah, Boyle, the main character. The main yeah. character. But also there is another, I don't know if it could be considered as an appetizer. I was trying, I was struggling just a little bit with the concept, but maybe, <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but, but I was thinking like, what could get you in the mood of like being yeah. stranded in space <laughs> and trying to repair nearly anything with yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking actually of a video game. Oh. Um, yes, uh, the name is No Man's Sky. Uh, oh, 
Yes, the one that was released, if I'm not mistaken, back in 2017, I think, or or it was like 2016. I, I yeah. don't. Yes, I don't recall it like exactly. It had like this really chaotic release. Yeah. And uh, it has been improving ever since. But one of the main premises of the of the video game is that you have like to repair your starship and you have to go like to the stars and beyond, essentially. Yeah. So it goes more in line with the other name uh, of the book, like yeah. the alternate title of the book. Uh, that is just that. And, um, well, teleporting is a mechanic, albeit it's not kind of like the principal thing, just yeah. like in the book. Um, but it's a really fun, it's, it's a really fun, like, yeah. time sink. My, my, That's great. My We've son... only had one video game uh, brought up as an aperitif, I think, in the uh, history. What was of the, the other one when I brought Martin up Martin Kessler, Civiliz certainly, I think, picked Silent Hill 2 for something. And I, I picked Civilization for something. Oh, okay. All right. So. <laughs> okay. Well, oh, for the Casca book. No, this is a great selection. <laughs> my son loves space stuff, and he likes open-ended video games, and he's only just recently started playing a little No Man's Sky. And so yes. that's a very – it's a it's – a, fascinating it's as soon as you said it i was like that makes perfect sense um well for it that so <laughs> i i uh, i agree with the selection it's a good selection too to think about you know i agree with john it would be interesting if people picked more of a variety i think john and i have a tendency to, to have a really narrow conception of our own game okay. and uh daniel what was uh what was your pick uh, well, mine was probably a little more conservative, but... Um, then you're joining with me and John. You're on yeah, our team now. A, a little bit. Um, but just, just before I read the book, I had read the book a, a long time ago. Well, a long time ago, I don't know, yeah, eight, nine years ago. Um, it really made an impression on me. And uh, just before I, I started reading it, I watched uh, Nicholas Ray's uh, On Dangerous Ground. Oh, uh -huh. interesting. And I really like, I, I don't know why, but I just connected the two characters immediately, like Robert Ryan's like really brutal cop and yeah. kind of his transformation throughout the film. And of course, Scully Foyles, who's uh, much more insane than, than the <laughs> character in, in uh, Nature's Ground, but, but I don't know, I just connected them immediately. I think it's a really nice pairing too. Yeah, that's one I never would have thought of. Does, and I haven't seen on Dangerous Ground in a while, does he grow a conscience in the same way through the he course of that movie? Also, kind of a religious experience when he meets with uh, Idolpino's like blind girl in in Montana. Yeah, and he has like this whole transformation, and it's very similar like to Gullifoyle's kind of his relationship. When he meets to Olivia, who's exactly. also blind. Interesting. That's a really cool selection. That's a great pick, especially That's since Robert Ryan. That's going to make me go back in. Yeah. Since Ryan keeps seeing uh, a version of himself on fire throughout the movie, just like in the book. <laughs> that uh, is a that is a lie, you son of a bitch. <laughs> It would have made a much better movie than, than the worse out. <laughs> oh, that is a, that's a genuinely great pick. Um, so obviously anyone who's a fan of swashbucklers who reads this book is going to immediately recognize that Alfred Bester was also a fan of swashbucklers and clearly borrowed the plot uh, structure of Count of Monte Cristo, you know, the story of man who is wrongfully imprisoned and makes his way out, escapes, and then comes back as like a flash dandy with all this treasure that he's happened mm -hmm. upon. Uh, Flash so, Dandy is my favorite sci-fi film. <laughs> uh, the, the Star is My Dandination is an alternative <laughs> title. 
Um, but I think that even another swashbuckler that he is probably at least partially inspired by wouldn't surprise me is uh, Scaramouche by Raphael. Um, oh Sabatini, yeah, because yeah. You, they're both revenge tales, obviously. Uh, both the protagonist, you know, takes on another identity, another disguise to get his revenge. And there are several times in this where Gully Foyle is referred to as a clown when he's in his dandy guise. They say no one suspects the clown because he's just making such an ass of himself. In the they figure nobody circus. who was trying yeah. to hide would make such an extravagant presentation of himself, which is a very scary move sort of thing because he's literally disguises himself as a clown. He's up on stage becoming a popular, you know, sideshow clown. Uh, so I got a lot of Scaramouche <laughs> from it, and uh, I love that Bester was obviously influenced by these uh, adventure books from you know the first half of the uh, the century. So yes, that's what I would bear with it, Chris. I think that is a, a that's a great choice as well, John. Do you want to take us a little bit through the plot of this plot-heavy book? Uh, plot heavy book this there's a lot of things that happen in this book there's constantly new things happening in this book so yes. maybe just a little bit of a lot of side uh, a lot of side trips in this book a lot of new characters kind of pop up uh, but yeah. the basic setup uh, to set everything up that this is a future where something called jaunting is uh, commonplace where humans have realized that they can teleport themselves from one place to another uh, just by thinking about it by having the basic the three basic principles, right? Location, elevation, and situation. Uh, they, they know where they're going. They've been there. They've seen it. They can immediately pop themselves into the, like their nightcrawler or something. They're just phasing all over the place. Um, and into this world, we meet Gully Foyle, who is a, uh, mer- on a merchant ship that has been uh, attacked and is adrift in the cosmos. And he is tra- he's trapped there. He's basically expecting to die. Uh, one day, another ship, a sister ship from the same uh, faction, passes by the ship and does not stop to help him. It literally sees him, sees his, you know, pleas for help, and moves right past. And at that point, Mr. Foyle is consumed with this idea that he must destroy Vorga, the ship that has, uh, that has come past him and left him to die, stranded in space. And, well, it kind of just goes from there. It goes in very unexpected places uh, from that point on. Uh, where the first thing that happens is he um, ends up on a, uh, it's a, it's a meteoroid, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Where the science people are? Yeah. Have, an inhabited asteroid. Yeah. And they, they accept him un, un, unwillingly as part of their society. And they mm-hmm. tattoo the face of a tiger on his face, which is apparently grotesque. It's just impossible to look at. And it's um, described at one point as being like the Maori tattoos. Yes, yes. That's kind of facial tattoos mm-hmm. for him. And they do it with a rusty tin can, which just sounds so <laughs> incredibly painful. This book is so tactile. In yeah, so just the ways. way they describe yeah. tattooing as being this ancient thing that nobody does anymore. Uh, you can imagine like <laughs> the sort of horrifying ways that they would do it in the future where it's uh, this ancient art that nobody has even heard of. Uh, and from there, Gully gets uh, involved with uh, the, basically, it's the big cosmic war between the outer planets and the inner planets, uh, which uh, the, the phasing thing, the uh, the jaunting has created because it's just created economic chaos uh, across the galaxy. And so it's a big, basically just a big war between these two factions and he gets in the middle of it. And then to try to describe it from that point, I think is almost impossible because there's so many characters that just kind of come in and out. But, uh, but like I said earlier, when I was describing with Scaramouche, you know, he ends up in a mine, in a dark mine prison, which he has to escape from. So there's a whole prison escape. Uh, and then he ends up coming back with this, um, this rich, uh, as this rich man that he was trying to, uh, you know, get, uh, 
trying to sneak his way into high society so that he can find the information he needs to get revenge on the Vorga. But throughout the thing, he is just consumed with this idea. First, because he's a simple man, he wants to just attack the ship. He basically just tries to throw yes. a grenade at the ship itself <laughs> to destroy it. And then as this he kind of becomes fault. more cultured and more educated, he realizes, oh, it's the people inside the ship I need to get. Uh, it has to be explained on. to him by, by Gisbella, by Literally his, his, his cellmate yeah. or his whisper line mate down in the, the, uh, the, the dank mine. Um, and yeah, and it takes him a long time to realize you always think he's going to sort of turn it to the head of this corporation that owned the Vorga. Uh, he's going to go after him, who's one of the main characters in the book, and he never gets focused on that guy. It never becomes about killing that guy. It's always about trying to find the captain, the crew and the captain of the ship mm. to kill them, which is, uh, which I think is is fascinating. I would say more than anything, the plot of this book is completely unpredictable even as a monte cristo hewing very close to it it's constantly like oh well that's that's where it's going now my question for the two of you it's december right now uh did you guys intentionally pick a book with christmas themes for the december episode and people being kidnapped in sacks because that is what we are all about here at this point fake santa clauses kidnapping patients out of mental wards in sacks. Was that on purpose? Damn. <laughs> or is my question doesn't even deserve a response? Okay, I actually have a no, sincere no, 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 question. No, 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 no. no, you phrased no. it so beautifully. I think you just froze no, yeah. this. You guys are just in like, awe of the question. Yeah. I, I have a sincere question that I could follow <laughs> that up with. I think the answer to that is probably, do I have to answer this, is the correct answer to that question. <laughs> my, my, my sincere question was, um, did you guys read this book in English or in Spanish? Oh, we, we read, read it, it in English. English. Okay. Yes. Interesting. First time I read it, I read it in Spanish. Oh, is there a difference? Because I was noticing how um, so much of this fairly subtle, especially like his gutter patois, and when he's mm -hmm. shifting in and out of it, does that does that come across in the Spanish or was it clear? No, in that's English? completely lost in the Spanish or at least in the Spanish translation I read. Uh, really, which is not uh, particularly like a prestigious translation. Yeah. What's cool about this kind of sci-fi is that you kind of get it really cheap on uh, on just like used libraries and they get used uh, yeah bookstores and that kind of stuff and uh, and thrift stores and that kind of stuff and. Um, yeah. Yeah, the translation of the, the, that particular edition is not very good. But I was surprised when I read the, the whole thing about the gutter talk in, in English. It's amazing, like the amount of detail that he kind of po that Bester kind of puts on page. And yeah. it really gets lost in the translation, at least in the one I read. That's interesting. That's very that. interesting. Because it's so, it's so, uh, it's easy to go bananas with that stuff, especially sci-fi writers. A lot of them want to, come up with their own language and their own future language mm -hmm. and really take it far. And this, there were times, it was very interesting how he would shift depending on who he was talking to. It's something that, that really struck me. Um, in, ge in general, are you guys, do you guys, cause I'm, you know, the world revolves around America. Everything that matters gets translated into English. You know what I mean? Like there's just, I'm the gullet that's being pumped full of, the content 
do you guys in a general way read is it a mix of english and spanish when you read stuff or is it generally spanish with exceptions for english or in a general way with genre fiction do you read in one language more than the other i think it's a mixture of both i, I try to read in, in english and spanish as much as i can uh, yeah. uh specifically because there's there's a lot of stuff that that is um that you can only find in english as you just said everything yeah. revolves around uh, america and uh, truly, like a bunch of stuff is only you can only get it in, in English, especially like um, genre pulp and that kind of stuff. Yeah, genre stuff. It's hard to get translations from that kind of from that the like that genre of books or that style of books. Um, but what's interesting about sci-fi, as I was telling you, is that you can actually get a bunch of really weird like sci-fi books that have been translated like to the crummiest uh, <laughs> publishing houses in Spain yeah. and Mexico and Argentina and Colombia. So you really get some weird, some weird picks, but uh, I think it's relatively easy to get books in English uh, in here, right? What do you think, Nick? Yes, well, uh, I would say that um, it, it, it comes also to, to how those translations, I mean, how, how well handled those translations could be. Sometimes, yeah. uh, as Daniel was mentioning, uh, they are not that good. I mean, they, they, they're, they're very pulpy and, uh, and the translation work is just, a lot of things are just lost there. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, there are like other editions that are like really good. I was reading the other day, um, kind of like uh, it was uh, the, um, the World of Rockanon by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay. Oh, wow, yeah. Yes, and, uh, and the Spanish translation is not that bad. I mean, there, obviously there are things that, that you might expect to change and everything, yeah. but I think I was having that, uh, that kind of like discussion with, um, with Chris the other day when we were talking about the translations in general. Yeah, when we were talking about the, the, the Carlos Fuentes book. Yeah. Mm -hmm, pretty much. And, uh, and you see that. You, you, you kind of like grow to be less nitpicky about some stuff. That, that you understand that it's not going to get translated or, or like translators and like publishing houses are just going to be, okay, this is not as, as important. So let's just leave it aside, right? Yeah. Because the, the, there, are, there are very subtle things and uh, that happens also with this book, with uh, The Stars My Destination. There are some things that are just not going to get there because they, I mean, even though they add some flavor, they're not essential to the recipe, yeah. right? So, so, so you can you can just get, like leave them out. Yeah, but at the same time, yes, it's it's a loss. It's a big loss. Like you know that, uh, and that is that that would be kind of like my answer. If I can, like if it was originally in English and I can like get my hands on it, then for sure I will I'll try to read it or I'll try to consume it in that language. Same with um, movies, even though I don't understand like a lot of like all the other languages that are spoken in the world. But when it comes like to, I don't know, like to Japanese or Russian yeah. films. Yeah, you, you expect to watch it like in its original language or its original soundtrack. And uh, maybe, well, yeah, you, you, get, you get a crutch from, from the subtitles. Yeah. Right? But, but it's part of like that experience, like trying to get as close as possible from the source material or from the original conception of the book. 
uh, which makes it like a really delightful experience. Well, it says so a lot the that with the it says a lot that genre fiction, in particular, uh, is ill-serviced. You know, in uh, universal translations, when you think about this book, it, this is one of the huge books of science fiction. Obviously, I mean, Alfred Bester is a giant in the genre. There's so many books and movies that are inspired by this. Obviously. Um, when that's getting ill-serviced, you know, when that is not, you know, getting a good translation, like say a Charles Dickens book or something like that, or Dostoevsky, when somebody's like sitting down, like how do we get as close as we possibly can to communicating the ideas and the language of this book to people who don't speak English and hearing that it comes up short just says so much about, you know, how as much as people say, oh, people uh, respect genre fiction now and they love detective fiction and they're considered literature when it's not available to everyone, you know, in the closest form possible, you know, it's not getting as uh, close an examination and as much respect still as yeah. the, the, the giant books of well, literature. Well, this is something, you know, you and I talk about too all the time, like where I can't believe those Jose Giovanni novels haven't been translated into English, you know, or the, uh, the guy who wrote Wages of Fear, how many of his books you just can't get in English. I'm always surprised with that stuff to me feels like, iconic of course i should be able to read the book that latrue is based on you know what i mean uh or wages of fear and they're just not translated into other languages it's always surprising with genre fiction i guess those things do qualify as genre fiction you know this actually reminds me a little bit again because in america obviously so much comes to us you know that it that it's not a problem I run into a lot. You have to go fairly niche. When uh, One summer I lived in Denmark and I would just go see movies there. And I would sometimes forget if I was going to see a Danish movie, it wouldn't have any subtitles on it. And I'd go and watch like a Danish horror movie and feel like I was understanding what ha was happening. And then there'd just be like a scene with a witch. And I was like, what, this is a supernatural movie? I thought this was like about a bad marriage, you know, kind of thing all the time with those movies, just the, the bait and switch of like, not even bait and switch, but just like the, I understand. And then no, no, not at all. I was completely wrong about where this was going. <laughs> so, but, so Nick, we, uh, you were gonna uh, respond to Chris. Uh, oh, this oh yes. Well, Chris was mentioning this, this sense of like, uh, I don't know if I would call it kind of like befuddlement or just like these surprising twist of events that happen like when you're watching a movie that you don't know what people are saying during the movie. I don't know, I, I thought of that, well, or something like very close while I was reading this book. And that was something that you guys mentioned at the, at the very beginning uh, of the episode. And is that like, you're just turning the page and like at every chapter's tale, there's something, and not even, there, there are not even like cliffhangers, like sometimes a chapter of this book ends and yeah. then the other one is like something completely <laughs> out of left field about robot and, uh, butlers out of nowhere <laughs> yes ro <laughs> robot butlers and radioactive kind of like uh, walking skeletons i don't know there are a lot of <laughs> things all going there but i don't want to get like too way ahead of myself. And, and you can go it. wherever you like, my man. You oh, know what this also reminds me of is I actually saw um, Mike Lee's Another Year down in mm -hmm. Bogota. My son's mother is from, is from Bogota. And I went to see it with a bunch of Colombians. And, okay. uh, and Leslie Manville's character, when people don't like that movie, 
they're like, she's so fucking annoying, I hate her, so I can't stand this movie, right, is a common criticism. And I saw it with a bunch of Colombians, and I noticed they weren't translating half of her dialogue because she talks so fast that the subtitles was only saying about half of what she was saying. And when everyone came out, everyone was like, she's so sympathetic. I felt so bad for her because the language of her, because she's a character who's an annoying in her language was completely lost by the translation. I actually saw that theater in Park 93, Park 92, is that, what is that area called? Yeah, Park yeah. 93, uh, Cinema like Nihon. Yeah, yes. yeah I, saw it, I saw it right, right there by the fanciest McDonald's I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> there used to be uh, a car juniors over there that, oh, that yeah. was also like really fancy. Yeah. Yes, we, but when it closed. Yeah, we stayed at a hotel closed, very- like, within three months, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we stayed at a fancy hotel and there's a, um, uh, a like Belgian waffles place near there that that she wanted to go to like every morning we had to go to like the the like ice cream waffles place okay. they're like crepes and waffles very nice. uh, <laughs> um, yes it is it, it is fun how like there are a lot of things now that you were mentioning that McDonald's and uh, <laughs> I believe that we, we're we're getting we're going to go to to talk a little bit about branding and yes uh, corporations of course but yes, everything that comes here, kind of like uh, Starbucks or McDonald's or Burger King, yeah. it's kind of like uh, upscale food here. It's, I mean, it was it's treated like that. Yeah. It is really fascinating. Yeah. And it's also fascinating too. I mean, I guess this is getting far afield, but within the context of the book, what reads as luxury in the book, right? Where you have the guy who, because jaunting exists, rich people, they drive around in cars and trains and walk places to show off how rich they are, that they have these outmoded ways of doing things. They'll go upstairs, right? (laughs) Uh, So that the idea of luxury is sort of malleable. And actually that McDonald's, which was extremely fancy and is Park 93 is a very lovely upscale part of town. I'd compare it to like Soho in America is what like Park 93. It has, it has its militants, yes. Yes, and, uh, and so, but this McDonald's is like a kind of fancy place there, you know what I mean? Whereas <laughs> yes. um, in this one specific area, whereas something like Coco Rico, you know what I mean? To me, it was like, oh, that was, as a tourist is like, this is delicious, take me to places like this. And Colombians <laughs> are like, I'm not going to eat at Coco Rico more than twice this week, Chris. Like, I'm not going to fucking do it, you know, kind of thing. And this book has an interesting idea, too, though, about how uh, luxury is malleable and the concepts of luxury are malleable and how consumer goods are, are like this very empty thing, you know, and just how the centuries will twist value and untwist it in, in yes. interesting ways. And in fact... You know, one of the the running themes when uh, Gully Foyle puts on his Monte Cristo hat and comes back as as the rich guy, the rich clown, is him talking about how hard it is to find ways to waste money. You know, after he gets the the 20 million chips and platinum bullion, I forget what the exact measurements are, but just the idea of how difficult it is and how exhausting it is for rich people to find ways to waste their money. So Daniel, let me ask you, because you had said that you'd read the book several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? What was the first drew you to the book? Are you a big science fiction guy in general, or did this one kind of, was it sort of an outlier for you? 
Uh, funnily enough, it was like the the name I, f- I found it as Tiger Tiger. I thought it was a really cool name. Yeah. Uh, especially for science fiction, such a weird name. Um, Were, and then did you I, did you identify it as being from the Blake poem when you saw it, or you just didn't? Even no, I did not. I just, yeah. was, it was just when I opened the book and saw that the book actually has the the Blake poem on it inside it that I realized, okay, oh, that's even cooler, right? <laughs> um, but I actually found I, I took the the small break and and uh, and I went and, and searched for the the original book, the one I read oh, in Spanish. Awesome. Yeah. Here it is, and this is the one, and I was just like reviewing it in case I was besmirching the translator and saying he was a terrible translator. No, but actually it's incredible, like uh, at first Gullifoil is so incredibly uh, wordy and he's so like clean with words that gutter speak is completely like gutted. Yeah, uh, no pun intended, of course. Yeah, and uh, it's a really cheap book. It really came apart when I read it. Uh, it's like completely <laughs> destroyed. Um, that's that's great I think though that's, i think that's the first thing and i believe someone had recommended i don't really remember who but someone had recommended that i read it and what's weird is that this edition you can actually find it in almost uh any uh like independent colombian library that book for whatever reason is uh readily available interesting huh. of all the characters the colorful characters that kind of drop into gully foil's story uh which one do you think is most interesting so this, oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm, that's really a good question. I really enjoyed. Um, well, I really like. Huh. That's a good question. What do you think, Nick? Well, um, again, I would that. say. <laughs> I would say that I don't know. There, there were several characters that, uh, for different reasons, they they caught my eye. Uh, one of them was uh, Saul uh, Davingham. Yes, yeah. this um, oh. independent defense defense contractor, senior that... specialist in chicanery and cajolery. Oh my! <laughs> L- look at that! Look at those titles. I mean, I, I really I liked. Like <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to top that. <laughs> and uh, the, I really, really liked how. I mean, like he has this, even though like he's kind of like part of this new class of rich people, because even Preston, uh, who is our main villain and, and at the same time is not. But, uh, but we, yeah, well, we're, we're getting there, I believe. But, um, but we have Saul Dagenham working alongside Preston and Preston of Preston, of course. And, and we have him and he has like these, I don't know, he has these different motivations and, uh, and he's, he's someone who is not as much into like amassing wealth as Preston is. He's, he's kind of like, he, he's doing things more for sport, just like hunting uh, golly foil. At some point he's like, I want to break this man and, uh, and I want to get any information I can get off him, but not because it's part of like my, my, my pay grade, but it's mostly just because he wants to see if he can. 
He seems and, to really enjoy the process of contending with the problem of gully foil. You yes. know what I mean? He seems to really, he almost reminds me of Kakihara and Ishii the Killer, who's just uh -huh. like so excited, like I'm going to get to meet Ishii at some point. He has that kind of energy to him, and he's similarly grotesque. He's been irradiated, so he looks like a living skeleton as well. He has that same... Yes, and, uh, and he has to take like all these kind of like... Uh, uh, measures in order to be with other people, which makes him kind of like, I don't know, something is going to happen with him. And at some point it does, like when yeah. he makes other robots malfunction because of his <laughs> mere presence. I love so when he melts the flower. I love when he destroys the flower just that's by being by it. Very cinematic image. moment there. Yes. And, uh, and the book is full of this. And, uh, and it's full of moments in which you have to think, like uh, wow, a lot of thought got in, like got into creating this character, into writing this, and uh, and and there are there are very interesting moments, such as uh, another one was Lindsay, uh, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the captain of the ship of the Borga, and she's found um, like very late into the book. And, uh, and, and we come across this realization that she has become something similar to a Trappist monk or, or what could be the same thing in the 24th century. And, uh, and she has like asked uh, to, to be, I mean, like to have all, all her senses removed. That is, that is also very interesting in a book that is so um it's so kind of like sensorial and it yeah. has like a, a whole chapter devoted to uh to asynesthesia yeah. but but she 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 makes this choice of like having all her senses removed touch uh, eyesight uh smell and she's just kind of like a, like a husk that is leaving yeah. deep like a misery cave. cocoon. Yeah. Even yes. mentioning that character reminds me. There's interesting characters constantly. The like seventy year old psychic baby oh, guy who's kidnapped. Be, that might be my favorite. Uh, like that sidekick. Is, yes, that is amazing. By the way, he just appears in one chapter and is thoroughly abused by Gully Foil. <laughs> I love just how Gully just like points him at everything. He's <laughs> instead of getting like the detector device, you know what I mean, that leads him to yeah. the treasure. He's got like the psychic baby begging for his nanny, the seven-year-old man that he points at everything to be like, where's Lindsay of the Vorga? It's great character. And uh, yes, that character is kind of like these, um, these old babies from Acura, like Katsuhiro Tomos. Oh yeah, great yes, comparison. That yeah. They, are, they are like these, um, I don't know, like genetically enhanced babies that are very sensitive, but they look like very old. And at the same time, they, they, they seem like they have been through a lot of abuse, which yes. is something that... Sensitive but looks very old, like John Cripps you're describing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yes, and they, they're subject, like, or, or in this case, like this baby is, is being subjected to so much harm and abuse that is that is something that is very also is very commonplace for a goalie yeah. who is i don't know like himself is he's kind of like um at some point he's he's compared to a tool to a chisel yeah. but uh but 
I was talking uh, with Daniel the other day about this, and and we like to think of it more or of him more as a sledgehammer, like yeah. the, this kind of tool that is not subtle, is not precise, is just is just like point point him at something, and he will crush it. Yeah. Like he, and in that, fact, that is he kind uses of like the reaction. sledgehammer in his prison escape. He has the sure. 20-pound sledge he, that he, he just... He uses an actual one. Yeah. <laughs> when they're like, this prison's inescapable, and he's like, how about I just kill everyone with a sledgehammer and pound a hole in a wall? And you're like, this doesn't sound like a super inescapable prison to me. <laughs> bang holes in every part of it. Well, it's a great setup, though, because the idea setup, is it's a, it's a jaunt-free prison, right? Like, mm -hmm. Everyone's in the dark. No one can see where they are, get their bearings but the guards have these see-in-the-dark glasses. And so the way that Gully Foyle escapes and uh, something that uh, Dagenham says is that he's always doing, you know, I'm trying to manipulate him this way, but he goes this way. You know, he always yeah. finds a different way to go about doing it. I wanted him to escape from prison, but not in the way he did it. Uh, and the way he does it is that the guards become so uh, accustomed to this, uh, to their sight, to the, they so rely on their senses that once he deactivates them and everyone's in the dark, he has the advantage now. Because yes, because guards, it's a you know, perfectly black prison where the guards have infrared goggles. Deep in the mines, completely yeah. dark. Exactly. Yeah. And part of jaunting is you have to be able to visualize where you are and where you're going to. So if you put people in total darkness and they don't surround, know their surroundings, the only way you can get out is to do a blue jaunt, which is apparently to jaunt blindly. And I guess it's hard for me to understand if they just end up in the sky and fall to their death or if they pop somehow by, by not knowing where they're going. I I thought of it as if they were kind of like teleporting into stuff. Instead. Oh, into like the mountain. That yes, because because it sounds sense. like explosions. So I like the to blue. Think just of it. made me think of the blue sky. Like you just send yourself out into the sky, and there's like right, no like... air pressure, and you go. <laughs> That's it. That's Even it though... for Nick's jaunt. Don't do it. <laughs> Jumping right into the sky and like. That, that, that would be the other thing, kind of like, I don't know, if you're in a prison and have been there like for, for years now, even decades, then, then probably like the only thing that you're thinking of or the only place where you would like to be like at, at a point like this is just out. And you think of yourself as in the sky or like the memory of, of you looking at the sky and seeing, oh, yeah. this is a beautiful sky, a beautiful sunset. And then, I, I don't know, I was thinking of it like that way, that it was probably more kind of like, like suicide, but more yeah. driven like by nostalgia more yeah. than anything else of, of a sky that they no longer see. The book but, makes uh, it sound beautiful and terrifying. It makes it sound like you'll escape and you'll die from it. Um, it's a really great concept and it bothers him later in the book. He hears popping sounds later unrelated. I believe when the war is starting and he thinks, oh no, people are blue jaunting here and sort of yeah. has like a PTSD reaction to it. Um, we've been saying, I tried to look this up and I couldn't find a clear answer. Maybe one of you guys know, have you guys read the Stephen King short story, The Jaunt, that's about teleportation? Are you guys familiar with that, that one? Mm -hmm. That must be... John, you know this story because you and I have talked about it before, influenced by this book in some way, right? Well, I mean, obviously it it's named after the, the mode of teleportation in this book, although it's kind of a different setup in the King story. It's families relocating to Mars, uh, but they're put unconscious because they say anyone who experiences the teleportation awake 
will basically uh, experience the infinity of time and space which they are traversing and go mad. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, you're it's not a little supposed bit different, to open but it your is, eyes. But it is exactly, exactly. But it is space jumping still. So the same, the concept is the same. And called jaunting. Um, is that a good? Uh, is that a good short story? It's great. It's, it's a good great. story. It is. Uh, the science is wonky. King admits that as much as that. But uh, <laughs> it's it's a cool story though. The whole it kind is. of concept I mean, of Lot's wife, you know, turning around and being destroyed by what she sees, kind of plays <laughs> into it. It's also got a great like. I don't know if it's the exact final line of it, but like the kid's line after he's endured the misery of opening his eyes is really so chilling. Much bigger. It's so much bigger. Yeah, than yeah, you could ever great. imagine. It is worth reading. You know, I'm not a huge Stephen King fan. That that and Survivor Type are really his only two stories I've ever read that really impacted me in any yeah. way. And most what, of my time. What I love about this book, just overall, is how is it's it's a story about will. You know that you need to will yourself to jaunt. You know, it's set up in the prologue that you really need to want to go where you go. They have this kind of uh, darkly comedic thing where when they're developing the tech, the, the, the evolution of jaunting, they have volunteers that they put into, they just dump into water and they have to jaunt it out or they'll drown. And of course, many of them do drown, uh, these poor guinea pigs, but it kind of comes with the idea that you need to want to jaunt in order to jaunt, to develop this kind of sensory uh, skill. And then of course, Gully is a man who is not motiv- no motivated to do anything. He's just ready to die on the ship until he has a will to, to vengeance that he wants to kill Vorga filthy, right? He wants to go after this ship and suddenly he has a purpose in life. And of course the ultimate weapon, the, the, the pyre is ignited through the will and idea, right? The classic Schopenhauer uh, idea that all you have to do is think about it, which by the way, what a terrible weapon. Why would you ever develop this? <laughs> Something that you only have to think, explode, and it destroys half the world. <laughs> Who came up with this idea? It's called the internet, John. Your thoughts destroying the world. Hmm? Huh? That's that's been Chris Funderburg. I'm going to jump on Twitter and uh, think peace corner. About that. Think peace corner. I would see it like more as uh, something as a like a residue or or something that came from from 1945 and like kind of like the Manhattan Project and all these like seeing this destruction. Uh, brought upon by just like pressing a button or having like the Enola Gay flying over Japan or something like this. I believe that this scared, like this, this has like a long uh, impact, a long standing impact on, on everybody's minds. And so, uh, yes, you can see that having like a weapon as powerful as this and when he hands all these pellets to everybody, I like that too. It's kind of like, okay, um, you're going to evolve uh, like to, to, all, to all humankind. Like you're going to evolve the same way I did and the same way uh, this uh, professor Jaunt did at the beginning. And it is that you, you need to be kind of like on this life or death situation. Otherwise, which is, which is kind of like uh, Foyle's reasoning that uh, if they're not put into that risky situation, they're just going to be, or to feel coddled by all these elites that are kind of like controlling everything and, and they have like this monopoly over things. So it's kind of like, yes, it's idealistic. At the same time, it's very dark. And it's, um, yeah, <laughs> sure. it's, I mean, it's, the way it's that really you haunting. Schopenhauer ideas to 
fascism and Nazism and things like that, the will to power, you know. That is unfair. I think that's, (laughs) I think that's, I think that's like blaming Nietzsche for the Nazis. I think that this is a little. I'm not blaming Schopenhauer for the Nazis. I'm just saying (laughs) the ideologies can be put to dangerous use. Yes, they can be co-opted. Yes. Like like the pyre itself. It can be used for these sort of supernaturally powerful jaunts, right? Or as a a bomb weapon in some way. That it's, it's, you know, it's not Schopenhauer's fault. It's Heidegger's. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not I I do really like the fact that that, uh, Gully is like uh, almost exclusively uh, powered through will. And that really yeah. was so fascinating about the character is that he's not really a, a particularly empathetic or sympathetic character. He's, you know. He's very uh, unsympathetic. Yeah, he's just a real bastard. He rapes most a woman of the in time. the first yeah, three he pages. Does. <laughs> yes. And, he really but, does. But, but, but the what, way he does this. Oh, sorry. That's okay. No, that, what I really like about the guy and like the reason why we kind of, the book is so enthralling is that the guy is so resourceful and so goddamn obsessed with with vengeance that it really he just kind of grabs you it's it's a magnetic personality he just grabs you and just kind of takes you uh through just sheer force of will throughout the book and not only the the reader but also every single character that encounters him suffers the exact same fate he just grabs them and he just takes them on his path to destruction yeah, it's will, it's very thematically will divorced from morality. So to make people understand that you have to have some very clear moral transgressions committed by the character. You can't, you can't have them be unambiguously, uh, well, there was a justification for that. You have to say if he's about this will to revenge divorced from any moral structures, you have to put him very clearly outside of the moral transgressions. And it's interesting too, I was thinking when I was reading this book this time, with, with genre fiction, there's a real tendency on critics and readers to uh, interpret the more like iffy, unpalatable parts as expressions of like the author's true feelings than an expression of theme, you know? And mm-hmm. I was thinking like, it's funny because if you read like Toni Morrison, there's a huge amount of rape and sexual violence in these books, right? And and they're not even presented uh, dispassionately, like they're tied up to strange impulses uh, in it too. It's not clear, like these things don't exist to be, show you sexual violence is bad. They're tied up to her themes and her delineation of character and exploration of this world. But no one would ever read The Bluest Eye and be like, this is an expression of Toni Morrison's hidden desires. The way that when you read a review of a book like this, it's like, it's playing to the audience's idea that they want to see rape in this kind of book and like ubermensch fantasies. And it's like, well, I, I, that's absolutely not true with this book. You know, I'm sure there are books you can't accuse of it, but genre fiction in particular, the idea is always that like, this is somehow a secret expression of the author's like, you know, like jerk off fantasies as opposed to like a thematic idea he's trying to explore. And I think in this book, it's very clear because it sort of cuts away, so to speak, before the the actual violence in a lot of Mm. cases. That this, this is a book that, doesn't want to like revel in a lot of his more transgressive behaviors. 
I was thinking, like, when I was reading this passage of uh, of him finding uh, the guy who is at the at the moon post, that he's kind of like a slave, and he goes back to the to the gutter, like, to, just to find one of the one of the last members of the Vorga. Yeah, and uh, and he does uh, he does all this thing about of. Um, Kind of like, uh, a, oh well, a goalie figures out that uh, that there is this device, like the sympathetic block. Yeah, I, I think it's named. That one it's of one of like, the many concepts that are introduced the moment they are relevant in this book. Yes, essentially, it's like oh, there's By the this. Way. <laughs> yeah, those sympathetic those SBs we've been talking about. I never heard this fucking phrase before this exact page. <laughs> And it's never going to be brought upon like exactly. afterwards. But but I, I firstly I found it like really interesting how it plays on on the part of like I don't know these spy novels where you have like the the guy who is about like to to commit suicide in order to not spill the beans. Yeah, so the cyanide pill in the tooth. Uh huh. Pretty much. So it's kind of like a variation on that. But the way in which, and, and he finds out, like Golly finds out uh, that, that they're using this device, like after two people die in front of him, like outright, and he's just, okay, well, let's go for the next one. <laughs> right, it was the next yeah. <laughs> I love his joke too at the second one, he goes, he committed suicide when he just dies in his arms during the interrogation. <laughs> yes. And he's mostly yeah. annoyed that he was just about to give the information, now he's yeah. dead. Great. Now he's dead. Okay, <laughs> who's the next on the list? <laughs> so, so, so he he finds this other guy, who is uh, who is um, in this kind of like uh, prison uh, complex in the moon, and and then he decides to perform surgery on him. So so he kind of like uh, I don't know like diverts the the blood flow uh, from its heart and uh, like the blood comes from a pump and he's just like that he's kind of like okay i studied this i i, I made like a small coursera domestica course uh, while i was asleep which is the other device for for him to learn uh, uh hypno learning if i'm not mistaken and and this scene this particular scene and this particular sequence is very very graphic yeah in, in how it deals it's like torture with, porny yes but it's the only, it's one of the only instances in which you see these being yeah. as graphic, because as you mentioned, uh, when, 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 when the rape scene takes place, it's kind of like, just like a fade to black. Like, yeah. uh, he puts, um, uh, 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 Miss Wensbury uh, on the couch, he pushes her, and it's like, you can do nothing about this. And then yeah. cuts, and then we we go to the next chapter, or the, not even the next chapter, just the next part. We we're in Preston's building yeah. right afterwards, and and it's the same when he becomes this kind of like the commando killer, that is one of the augmentations that he has once he becomes uh, four miles, like this yeah. clown, this scaramouche, uh, that is also kind of like. Uh, um, genetically engineered superhuman it's a yeah. very fun concept it is it's very like the movie upgrade to picture it if you've seen upgrade <laughs> it has that feel of he's suddenly able to do superhuman physical feats like yes. that almost like by robotic programming in this case his superhuman feats are just like beating the shit out of people <laughs> <which is> just, <laughs> just obliterates 
<laughs> he uh, and he does that at some point. Like uh, there are some jackals, uh, these scavengers that can teleport and just ruin stuff and occupy buildings and, and such. And he sees them and they they are trying to rob him. And he's okay. I'm going to become like this superpower killer. And uh, during the next like the next sentences are just like that, just a blur of red and movements. And right after that, they're all dead. But yeah. there is no there is no revelry of these violence in these points, which which I find like I don't know. I, I find it tasteful because of that because it implies uh, violence more than if it were graphic. Yeah, and he's also kind yeah. of. It kind of too works into the characterization of him as like an animal, which you bring up a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, the gully foil is has animalistic tendencies, and the tiger, uh, you know, tattoo kind of brings that out. And then when he becomes the super soldier, he strikes like like a like a cat more than you know like a, a killer or an assassin. Yeah, and one thing we should mention about the tattoo that's another one of the very cinematic conceits of the, of the book that I really like is he has it removed by like a, a a special plastic surgeon, but the plastic surgeon can't get rid of the very subdermal aspects of it. So when he gets uh, loses control of his emotions and the blood rushes to his face, the tattoos return, and mm-hmm. it's described as the tiger stripes coming back out of him. It's almost an incredible hulkish rush to transformation like a blood red stigmata basically yeah exactly Mm -hmm. that comes over his face which was one of the the interesting uh very visual things in the book that's obviously uh then becomes an aspect of him trying to hide his personality when he is trying to conceal himself and control his emotions and a lot of the book is about him uh being instructed by first by by Gisbella to you have to be able to get a control of yourself or you're never going to be able to do anything and again tying into the theme of controlling will and directing will and how will is both spontaneous and directed is one of the fascinating things about this book is again it is very Schopenhauer-y is that our ideas come to us and we control our ideas you know what is the inception of an idea where does an idea come from we can't think our thoughts into existence our brains don't work like that you know they come to us and then we sort of mold them in some way i think too the kind of two-edged sword idea of uh, of will comes up when uh, dagenheim has a has some has a quote where he says uh yes no matter how we defend ourselves against the outside we're always licked by something from the inside there's no defense against betrayal and we all betray ourselves sort of the idea that if you can't impose your will into reality, what's, what's the limit? It's like jaunting, you know, once you can jaunt into space, what's the, what can't you do? You know, like what is going too far? And a lot of the villains in this, I've obviously, you know, end up going way too far. And I think Golly Foyle, you know, especially as someone who realizes that he's got to stop before he, before he goes to the full limit. I before think he, that... The character were, or the character that kind of like illustrates this, not only uh, willing things, but going too far into this will is uh, Olivia. Yeah. Uh, who, who he meets like uh, after, after she, he discovers that she was the one aboard the uh, Borga. Yeah, and, and she's and Preston, the, the main villain's daughter, Preston's mm. daughter. And she was piloting or captain of the Vorga, in charge of the Vorga somehow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and she's just like that. I mean, she she just committed like genocide uh, right before 
or right after uh, they meet uh, in space for the first time. Uh, she, she was carrying all these refugees, uh, 600, and then she drops them, kind of like scuttles them away. Them. <laughs> yes. And, it's a scam uh, where they get the money to be taken to safety and they just drive them out to deep space and dump them in space is the scam that she's running. It is, and and when he learns of this, uh, he, he he's kind of like, even though he loves her somehow, uh, he he tries to find a limit to this, and, and she she tells him that uh, this is this is who they are, that he has also kind of like enabled this, and he's also like an animal, and he has to accept himself as who he is, and he's like, no, wait a minute. And, um, and, and he has all this realization after going through all of this and after like killing a lot of people and uh, like doing like the unthinkable just to find out who was aboard the Borga or, or what, what happened during that September day um, where, where he was like left for death in space. And, uh, and right afterwards, he's just like, okay, I, I gotta, like, no matter what we do, we can do better, right? Yeah. That there is this kind of like, I don't know, uplifting uh, sensation that comes at the end and that he has to, to learn how to guide his thoughts. And, and he kind of like uh, is born again, which is something also pretty interesting uh, that, uh, that I think we, we could also land on. And, that it, and it is kind of like these spiritual themes that appear yeah. throughout the book. And not only like the, the direct references to Christianity and to spirituality overall, but also, also this kind of like this um, sense of forgiveness or being born again when uh, right at the end he goes back to this asteroid uh, where he was tattooed for the first time. And he's found like... As, as, if he, as if he were like in, in, in a fetal position and it's like, okay, our, our demigod has returned. Yeah. To, to, he to returns as a prophet at that He's, point. He returns as a prophet. And, 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 uh, and also, even though he, he wrecked that place up, he's like, oh, but, but he brings kind of like the truth. Yeah. He's like this science incarnate, and, 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 but also carries this faith of having seen the stars first like by himself firsthand and and then yes he he's kind of like this prophet that is born again kind of like i don't know as a christian as as christian people when they're baptist they're kind of like born again um as as this uh, christian concept that uh he's found by all these people in the asteroid and 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 there th these themes are peppered throughout all the book and, and you can see also how religion is treated in this 24th century, just kind of as if it were smut or something like highly illegal. Yeah. But I also love with the scientific people who have built a religion out of science, right? On this <laughs> asteroid, they're called the scientific people and you, and they're obsessed with science. Uh, but that, the picture of them is great because they found like old science textbooks and they descended from scientists who were stranded on the asteroid. So they like, 
have turned chance into like quant stuff is what they repeat <laughs> because there's a formula that says quantity sufficient, right? Or the way they talk about like very scientific, spread the, the most, genetic material, most, most scientific, <laughs> spread the genetic material. And it, and it actually reminds me a lot of, I don't know how much you guys get it down here, but there's a kind of type in modern America that's really like, sciencey but also completely clueless about it it's on my mind with covid where from the beginning a lot of covid stuff was like the six feet right and now all the mm -hmm. studies are out that it's like the six feet is meaningless it came from nowhere right it's somewhere between 20 and 26 feet that you can see a reduction in transmission but you just have all these people being like six feet very scientific, you know, wear, wear masks six feet, you know, even though some studies show that like the neck gaiters increase the transmission and stuff. It has that same feeling of like people co-opting the language of science and speaking idiotically with it. And they're just so funny in this book. And it reminds me of me in some ways too. I'm, I have a tendency because I come from a family of scientists, my dad's an engineer, my sister's a really serious computer engineer, that I will sometimes accidentally say things that are like idiotic versions of scientific thought and go, what, what am I doing talking about fungibility? I don't actually know what that fucking means. Like, I need to stop talking this way. And you're a very fungible guy too. <laughs> that I've never been so insulted in my life, John. I think I'm irreplaceable is my view on myself. Um, of all the guy, concepts wanna... that pop up in the book, yeah. uh, let me ask uh, Daniel, uh, besides the jaunting, obviously, one of them that really like <laughs> stuck in my brain was the, uh, uh, the, the, the managers or the supervisors under uh Prist pristine the uh the oh, mr prestos yeah I, when i was going to name my favorite side character was the turncoat secret agent mr presto that's my favorite side character <laughs> <laughs> what are these it's, concepts what are some that you that stick out for you oh absolutely i really like uh, we actually talked to nicholas with nicholas about the mr prestos for a long while because it's such a weird idea of um, of the book's vision of, of just uh, royalty, so to speak, and this kind of modern royalties, which are completely based on what in the moment were just very famous brands and then kind of just yeah. slowly transformed into kind of this royal families of which Preston is one of the most important. And it's so um, weird that the way that he has to actually swear in every single Mr. Presto <laughs> into his own family <laughs> And actually, all Mr. Prestos look exactly the same. They're yeah, like Abraham Lincoln's Lucalis yeah. or something like that. It, we they have to receive some as... kind of surgical inter intervention so that w whenever you go into a Preston store, you have received the exact same guy. Yeah, it's kind manager. of like if you made a mat, like if Mr. Peanut was a guy <laughs> who had been genetically <laughs> modified to look like Mr. Peanut and he was in every store. They genetically modified 500 people to look exactly like Mr. Peanut. And every time you go to buy peanuts, he's selling it. That's the idea. That's funny. It's, My example was Mr. Pringle. We were so close. There's, <laughs> it's such a fucking funny idea. It's, it's one of the best ideas in the world. And it also has that like, oh, no, this is going to happen feeling to it, too, <laughs> at some point. Um, do you guys, this is, this is a kind of interesting uh, book in that, science fiction gets divided up between hard science and soft science fiction a lot of the time. 
where do you guys locate this book along that spectrum between hard science fiction and soft science fiction? I would say that uh, this one belongs more in the softer side of the spectrum, even though it has like a lot of concepts and, 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 and well, it relies specifically on teleporting. But, um, but at the same time, it's not as description heavy as harder sci-fi, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it also kind of like, it, it, like um, it jettisons all these ideas of spaceships and all their kind of like, uh, if they need these qualities, some of these things are mentioned. So I wouldn't say is it's on the softest side of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I think it goes back but, to what you were saying about how these concepts kind of pop up out of nowhere, like, oh, you know this yeah. thing. Oh, and it's not a lot this. of world building. It's not a lot of heavy technology. Also, it sounds like we're making fun of how they pop up. I love that about this yeah. book. There is a new idea every single fucking page. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's like narrative whiplash, but there's so many ideas in this book. It's just like bottomless how many ideas it has. I can think of like, I don't know, the anti-gray uh, fields that every spaceship has. And uh, I have no idea what they are. And, and I had like a really tough time thinking of, okay, what is an anti-gray field? Yeah. Or, I don't know. There are other things kind of like, but they, they are, they are, they're just that they appear every now and then. And most of the time I thought that, um, that it relied more, uh, upon like these relationships between the people that are using these technologies or that are kind of like ad adjacent to these technologies more than, the, the future or the patch of, uh, of like a science lingo that could be into it. And, and I think that even sometimes it makes fun of it, right? Just like the, the scientific yeah. people. And, uh, and it's something like that, like people who think that even though they're surrounded by science, they're no more than gullible fools. I agree yeah. entirely. I think Kurt Vonnegut owes his entire existence to this book, honestly. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of like, taking these brilliant concepts, but also kind of playing with them a little bit, making them kind of fun, you know, fun kind of making fun of themselves, like you said. Yes, I, I would say that, 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 um, that, that it works like this and uh, that it, it lays on the softer side on the spectrum. And, uh, and Daniel, you also mentioned something about Kurt Vonnegut that, uh, that it was kind of like a keen, also they're contemporary, so. Absolutely. But also, I, well, I love like Kurt Vonnegut. He's one of my favorite writers. Yeah. But uh, like reading this book, you really can see how much it influenced him. Uh, just like, uh, I really like the, like this book also has a really cool thing is the way it uses like fonts and the way it uses uh, um, stuff that probably would belong in other type of, of writing. They just kind of put it in there and they, it, yeah. every single edition I've seen of the book has exactly the same thing and it has like this really powerful effect upon the uh, the reader and um it really is uh, i don't know we've I've heard this many times today just how cinematic the book is how many like cinematic images it actually has and um and i think that's one of the reasons why the book exactly there you go 
and it really reminded me of, of like uh, Breakfast uh, of Champions when Bonnie just started drawing some stuff and just kind of puts yeah. them inside. And it's not like a drawing or an illustration or whatever it is. It's just part of the narrative in, in and of itself. And it's something that really uh, strikes me about this book. But I think it's one of the reasons why um, when we're talking about whether it's hard uh, sci-fi or soft sci-fi, um, I think one of the reasons why this one kind of holds up so well is because it's so focused on on the writing style and how visual it is. Um, but also because it's so focused on, on human nature, right? Absolutely. Like, like uh, he, I, Esther has absolutely no problem in throwing in something new because we're not really invested in how everything works, but we're much more invested in how these people kind of relate to each other and how realistic they seem, like the characters. Yeah, and I agree. Science of Titan is basically a sister book to this in that same concept entirely. Or mm -hmm. the way that at the end of Cat's Cradle, Ice Nine is used to destroy a country the way that uh, Pyre is used, you know, in this to blow up half of the world. Also, um, I, I believe that uh, the fact that he does not try, like, to create uh, new technologies just for the sake of it, uh, it's, it's something that helps the book uh, stay relevant uh, because, well, it is the 50s and, uh, and many other writers could have just kind of, like, try to think of, um, of something that could be seen as futuristic in some ways, mm -hmm. but 30 or 40 years later, we could see them as dated, right? And whereas uh, we have in this book like that things so much emulate the past or they try to, to scheme the past and where where, 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 yeah. where all these, these uh, past trappings, such as like these 19th century lifestyle and all this stuff about the brands, that is something that you could see that you, you could see it happen in the future more easily than, than if they were talking about some sort of like space travel or very specific vehicles that, uh, yes, that in the future, which is something that happens a lot with, with these, um, retro futuristic books yeah. and uh and i don't feel that uh in the stars my destination is such a book no i was i was really hard for me to believe it's from 1956 uh it's aged exceptionally well as as like daniel mentioned it to me it reads like william gibson or transmetropolitan it reads like it was written um after Philip K. Dick, like it's a world in which like Vallis and Flow My Tears already exist is what this book reads like. And I know Philip K. Dick was writing in the 50s. He's doing short stories and stuff at that point. But but you know what I mean? Like his famous hmm. stuff had already influenced the consciousness. It's it's again, it's like it's a little ahead of Ballard. It's a little ahead of that stuff. But it, it reads like that next generation to me, like it holds up that well. It's it's sort of shocking and it and like i know it's from 1956 i'm reading i know it's from and i kept checking oh what year is this from this might be from like 74 right it just feels that uh uh ahead of its time in some way it feels fresh because i also associate a lot of the science fiction of the 50s has not aged well and a lot of science fiction of the 70s has aged incredibly well so that's also why i think i make that that association with it um, shall we guys, we, I really enjoying talking to you. We, uh, we try not to go over two hours on episodes. Shall we move on to our dessert pairings? Did you guys have any more final thoughts you wanted to say about the book? John, 
you have your hand up. You're a good student. Do you have a question? One last thing I wanted to talk about before we move uh, into that, uh, because you've already preached the subject. We're out of time. Stop. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Go on. (laughs) Just one last thing I wanted to bring up since you've already preached the topic, and I'm assuming we're all John Carpenter fans, correct? Or absolutely. All right, we are. Uh, It's except for his movies. I had the same thing where uh, I watch, I read this book and I thought I was trying to look for what Carpenter would find appealing in it and kind of plugging some things in. I, you know, of all things I thought when I thought about uh, uh, Dagenham, whoa, Sam Neill would be amazing in this role. <laughs> Thinking of memoirs of an invisible man, I was chasing Chevy Chase around. Um, but this is obviously a very difficult book to adapt. I think in mainly of the prison, how you would do the prison uh, in total darkness uh, just mm-hmm. so many things that would be difficult to translate. Do you guys think this could actually be done as a movie? You can't picture Oliver Reed throwing people around, hitting people with sledgehammers. <laughs> it's a really good question. Yeah, I, we actually talked about this just you know a couple of days ago. Um, I actually have a, a, this a weird theory. I think that Carpenter kind of adapted the book in Day Live. And I think oh. when he saw that... I saw Roddy Piper uh, yeah, as Billy exactly. Boyle when I was reading like, this. As, as, I, as soon as I read I because I heard you guys talking about Carpenter's like um, obsession with this book, and I thought, oh, wow, Rod- Rowdy Roddy Piper would have been an incredible casting yeah. for uh, Gully Foyle. But I don't know if... Um, I don't know. I Quite frankly, I don't think it could be it could be done. Um, especially like with the the kind of, of science fiction that is coming out nowadays, um, I don't know. I can't. I just have a nightmare uh, or like a recurring nightmare of seeing this adapted like you know, on Netflix or something like that. And it just they just kind of remove kind of everything that's kind of um, dangerous about the book. Yeah, just that's a the great fact point. that Golly Foil is so goddamn insane. Um, that would be just completely neutered, I believe. Yeah, science fiction these days in film is so sterile and so mm-hmm. cold and self-serious. It would be hard to think of taking risks. Virulent, fuzzy, bacterial book in that way. This is not a sterile book in in any way. And I and I think you're right that the essence of what this character is. I think there would be a lot of like we can't have him be that. You know, it's especially every every character in the book reacts to him like what is this thing you know what is this creature we're encountering and and one of the things i love about the book is everybody has such a hard time understanding his motivations because the motivations are destroy the vorga you know what i mean like that's that's it and i think you get in front of an, an executive what's his motivation uh he wants to destroy the vorga because it didn't stop oh like the people inside it know the vorga at some point, he'll get the idea of destroying the people, but it's really to destroy the Vorga. And then he has a transcendental realization of uh, the emptiness of will divorced from morality and that faith as a representation of faith is self-generating and that's the autogeny of spirituality and humanity. So what does he do with really? it at that point? Just starts blipping through time. Just starts <laughs> blipping through time. That's the resolution of this book. He doesn't kill anybody. No, just starts blipping. That's it. Becomes a little little prophet god on the scientific people planet. Uh, the ones he were played for comedy up until that point, and he destroyed with the jet thruster. Yeah, yeah, he's their uh, you know he's their god now. Preaching, just doing his stuff. 
to answer John's question, I would say that maybe it could get adapted, but, um, but it couldn't be live action. Uh, I'm completely, yeah. and this might lead into, into my uh, dessert. But, uh, but I believe Lead right that... into it. Let's go. That's a perfect transition. Take us into your dessert. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say that animation is, is perhaps the way to go. And one of the attempts that uh, have been made in order to adapt this book, I don't know if you guys already know of it, is uh, this anime. Uh, its name is uh, Gansukuo. Right, and it's essentially well. It was translated, uh, or it is known in the United States and overseas as the Count of Monte Cristo. It is <laughs> an it is a very interesting anime. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it is from 20, 2005, and okay. uh, actually it was made with uh, the Stars My Destination in mind. However, uh, Bester's estate uh, didn't lend them the rights. So they, have, they had to go for the next best thing. So they went into adapting the Count of Monte Cristo. But, but you see, you see the blueprint there. I mean, the, the main character, this Count of Monte Cristo, uh, is, is more of an asshole and is closer to, to four miles than it would ever be to Edmond Dantes. And the animation style is beautiful also because it kind of like, I don't know, it, it takes uh, elements from uh, like French Impressionism, like late uh, 19th century French Impressionism, and uh, it overlays them on the textures of the animation. So all the characters, they look like uh, Gustav Klimt paintings. It's beautiful, and it's very it's very sensorial in that in that regard. So uh, also, it's very like batshit insane because it's, <laughs> it's the Count of Monte Cristo, but it has mechas because it's a Japanese anime. Yeah. So so you 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 have this. I I think that is that is a an anime a series that you can fully enjoy if you have read the book already because well the count of monte cristo is is this universal alexander dumas tale and and it's so universal that even like um telenovelas are almost entirely based upon this concept of uh, as somebody who is uh, uh who is wronged and then they, they become rich and they start slapping the people that, that yeah. wrong them, that slight them, right? And at the end, well, they marry with the rich guy as well in the, the status quo is uphold it. But, uh, but essentially it is, it, is, it is this, but it's not as easy to understand or as easy to parse uh, if you haven't read the book, I feel. And, and it, it complements the experience, as I was telling you, like in, in this visual aspect, it, it does pretty well. So, so I think that would be my dessert. The Count of Monte Cristo, Gansuku. If you make me want to watch it, and I can honestly say I've never said that about an anime before. Okay, well, <laughs> we're, we're opening doors today. <laughs> um, I will, I'll do my uh, choice real quick, and then, John, you can do yours, and I think it would be appropriate to end on, on Daniel, on our guest, right? Sure, yeah. My choice is... Um, Sword of Doom, the uh, Kiache Okamoto mm. movie. Yeah, and 
this mm. this movie is about a guy who's uh, almost become an an inhuman tool of like uh, like Ali Foyle. He's almost not a person anymore. He's just like a a uh, undefeatably uh, honed piece of equipment who's moved beyond sort of morality. He has a very precise sense of will as the unbeatable swordsman. And that's just who he is. And he's so unbeatable. Uh, basically, the only plot to it is him having his confidence shaken a little bit before he has to, you know, kill the people who want revenge on him for the, the other things he's done. It's sort of a funny movie where it's not that he wants revenge. There's all these people coming for revenge against him because he's just been an unstoppable, unbeatable killing machine his entire life, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, I'm sort of corrupting the plot a little bit to to make it apply more. But the end of the movie is basically like uh, the end of this book where he becomes uh, so powerfully honed and in tune with himself. It's almost like a transcendental moment the movie ends on. It famously ends on like a freeze frame where he's just become this uh, uh, supernatural being because he's refined himself so completely that he's no longer a human being that it takes on a transcendental aspect. And I think it's the exact flip side to what Stars My Destination is saying about humanity. I think that like, if there's something Jesus Christ-ish in Gully Foyle, there's something Lucifer not, and devilish and diabolical in, in, the, in the Unbeatable Swordsman. Um, and it's also just a great fucking movie. You should see it just to, just to see it. But, you know, uh, that, is, that is my pairing with it. You know, sort of the darkness flip side uh, that imagines there is nothing but will. And if you hone your will so completely, you can become your sword, essentially. You can be a human who's nothing more than a sword uh, is basically the theme of that. You can be, become doom as a human concept. John, what is, what is your selection? So like with my aperitif, I'm first going to just mention a pretty obvious comparison and then suggest something else. Uh, Obviously, this book owes a debt to A.E. Van Vogt's book, The World of Null A, which is another fantastic science fiction book. One of the, the big heavies uh, came out just a few years before this one. My dad uh, think, had them right next to each other on the shelf when I pulled yeah, them out. Yeah, again, they, they are like uh, Sirens of Titan and uh, Stars by Destination sister books very much. Um, but I'm actually going to suggest Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is the first part of his Hyperion Cantos, uh, very long series. Uh, which is basically his repurposing of Canterbury Tales and Hunting of the Snark in a science fiction world. Um, again, these characters, these pilgrims who come together, they have a single purpose, single-minded purpose, which is to find this god monster called the Shrike, which has uh, impacted their lives mostly for the worse. And they think if they can find him, they could right the wrongs that he's kind of, uh, his presence in their lives is kind of uh, precipitated. So, um, it doesn't have uh, teleporting by natural human evolution. It actually has something called Farcast, which uh, allows them to go from one world to another uh, through gateways, basically from, you know, going through portals, you go into one, then you end up on a completely different world because at this point, the whole galaxy, the whole universe has been uh, colonized and uh, you can basically go anywhere you want. And there's some really fun sequences in the book where there are chase scenes and whatnot, you know, characters, 
going into one portal ending up somewhere else. If you're a Rick and Morty fan, I guess you probably enjoy this book um, for that reason. So uh, Hyperion would be my, my recommendation. Daniel, take us, take us to the end. What is, what have you got for dessert? What's your delectable I have, devilish um, irresistible dessert? I have also a quite devilish dessert. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read uh, the Lieutenant of Einishmore. No. Yeah, it's, it's a, McDonough, yeah. Exactly. It's a very short play by, written by Martin McDonough when he was uh, quite young. Martin McDonough, of course, became hugely famous when he kind of got into film and did in Bruges and uh, I don't remember what his second Seven film is. Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths and, of course, the Three Billboards uh, outside of Missouri. Yeah. But he's actually a very accomplished uh, playwright in his own and the Lieutenant Vintage Moore is one of my favorite plays and it is a play about essentially a northern island torturer whose cat goes missing and he goes insane and starts murdering everybody in the in a very small town and uh, I think it's almost literally uh, the stars my destination and what's kind of cool is that uh, inside like kind of the notes of the of the, um, of the play you can actually hear sometimes the way they're sawing bones because he murders so many people. He needs to start kind of getting rid of the bodies. Yeah. And uh, another that thing that's very cool is that a uh, little bit like the Stars My Destination, it's kind of um, a very kind of self-conscious uh, book, or it kind of mocks a little bit the the you know the trappings of sci-fi. In this case, he mocks kind of the trappings of of uh, plays. And um, a lot of the dialogue is very kind of theatrical, despite the fact that it's a town in, in Ireland. Um, but he has uh, his own version of, of Gutter Talk, which is uh, different combinations of cat and something like cat bashing or cat bombing, that kind of stuff. It's a really funny play. And, um, Sounds great. I love, I, I love his uh, first two movies. Um, mm -hmm. So I would definitely check this out. It's his and best it, play, for sure. Yes, I and, agree. Uh, I saw it performed live, and at the end, there's a lot of gunplay. The squibs totally fucked up, and it was rough watching the poor actors on stage having to, you know, act like, oh, I'm shot, even though no, you know, oh, <laughs> there was no, no effect. No blood was seen on stage. There was John, rough. it's called acting, and if they were good actors, it <laughs> they, wouldn't have faced They definitely them. stood up. <laughs> yeah, they definitely uh, made it work. They should have, have, they should have played pretend. Sorry, go on. I do have one final question. Do you yeah. guys think there's one filmmaker that could have pulled it off? Satoshi Khan. Oh, okay. Very nice. That's, that's my choice. There you go. I, yes. I, you put it in be. my mind when you started talking about, about anime. I think, I think he's the one who, who could have done both the, the, the bluntness of it and the characterization. He handles characters very well. And he also obviously is famous for his phantasmagoric imagery and that sort of thing. I'd love to see him animate the Burning Man would be a delight to see. That would have been great. It's, it's a shame he, he's no longer here with us. But uh, but yes, that's that's a great. Book. Oh, did it? Was it supposed to be a living director? I was like, wait, did I just take? Who are we going to email? Yes, because the idea after this was just to lobby this director. Yeah. And, and, and I'm afraid I'm going to I'm going to sound like somebody I hate to say to suggest uh, Hodorowski. I think you know. Oh, oh, very interesting. Oh, okay. It could make an interesting movie out of it. I don't know if it'd be 100 successful or really even. 
hit the then, themes then of the book, but I think it would be visual. fucking on this spaceship. Ah. <laughs> it goes down and there's a butt. Oh. That's my impression of Joe Well, Who are your guys' selections for it? <laughs> what do you have, Nick? Uh, well, a director that could have pulled this off. That's a really difficult one, actually, because, uh, yes, even though um, Satoshi Kong could have been a really good one, I believe that uh, also Mamoru Oshii oh, yeah. uh, from Ghost in the Shell. Uh, yes, and uh, also, like, his live-action uh, works, I don't know if you have seen them, that uh, they all, that, that he has, like, this universe um that uh, I think it's, no, wait, it is him or I'm thinking of the other guy from, um, what is this, this movie called? Um, the Wolf Brigade? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yes, uh, I wrote about him on Filmigrana even, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty iffy with names. Wait, Holt. G, what? Um, General? General. Yeah. General. Um, and I, if I'm not mistaken, yes, that's part of Mamoru Oshii's universe. Okay. Uh, the movie was directed by Hiroyuki Okure, but, uh, but Mamoru Oshii is the one responsible for the whole Jinro universe, which is comprised not only of, of this movie, which was written by Oshii, but also, uh, it has like radio dramas and it has uh, plays and uh, live action movies. And like these characters that uh, Oshi wrote, they also remind me a lot of um, Golifoil in the sense that they are these really amoral people and uh, they find a way to, to overpower their circumstances just through sheer will. So I think, I think that this would be like this corrupt universe. Yeah, would be would be in pretty good hands uh, if it were handled by Oshi. Yeah, that would be my pick. It's pretty good. I think it would have. Um, I don't know if it would work, but I, I'd like to see a Samuel. I would have liked to see a Samuel Fuller version of uh, the Station. Kind of a shock corridor style, like low budget sci fi thing. Um, I don't know if Fuller directed anything sci-fi. He never it. did any no, sci-fi. He never got around. It was that. just Even war he worked and a lot of the, genres. Well, yeah. drama. Yeah. But I think it would have been an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting Very approach. Interesting pick, yeah. That's fascinating. Is it too late to change my pick to Dan Aykroyd? Can I switch to Dan Aykroyd? <laughs> you know, do it, do it in, a, in a nothing but trouble style take on it. <laughs> guys, thank you so much for doing the show. I'm I'm really glad, you know, you're you guys are are I really admire Phil McGrana. I admire you guys. I'm glad we got to come on and talk, and it's all the better that you picked a great book that I don't think I would have otherwise otherwise read. No, well, uh, thank you, uh, Chris and John, um, particularly for inviting us and uh, for churning out all this content for creating this space. Uh, we're really glad uh, to be here. And well, uh, thanks also to Daniel because I kind of like <laughs> brought him with me, <laughs> uh, Gully Foil style. Yeah, but, but, but in the end it paid off. Like I'm really grateful uh, for this and for this chat and looking forward to being here in this same space uh, any other time that you guys tell us. 
Absolutely. Thank awesome. you. Thanks a lot for having us. And uh, I hope what we said would make any sort of sense. I don't know. Well, we'll be able to fix it in post. All right. Very good. That, that, no, that's, that's it's all a great conversation. Maybe just a 10 minute podcast then. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of it, like introductions and goodbyes. It may be about a different book when we're done with it. Is that okay with you guys? <laughs> it's all good. It's going to be about voice. the fault in our stars instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but thanks a lot for having us. It really was an honor. And, and yeah, we hope, you know, I hope we, we can do it again. Awesome. Absolutely. Huge honor on this side as well. Oh, please. Okay, so have a great night then, guys. And uh, You stole John's time. line. <laughs> have a great night, everybody. Our, our, killer tag, our killer tag outro. John saying, have a good night, everybody. <laughs> you stole, listening to this. You stole <laughs> it. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> could could, could oh. think of anyone better to give it. <laughs> <laughs>